Hello and welcome to the Human Factor Podcast, a series of conversations discussing the topics and themes influencing the world of work today. My name is Michael Esau. I'm a global HR advisor at SAP. And I'm Simon Humphreys. I'm a solution architect at SAP. So this week's topic, Simon, is a human-centered approach to design, thinking, and change. For me personally, I'm particularly excited about this episode. Uh, our, our guest, uh, Vikas, is somebody who is a real thought leader, somebody that I've been following for the last number of years. And you and I, you know, have benefited from, you know, his philosophy, his thinking, and it's influenced our work. So this is going to be a, a great conversation. But what are you in particular looking forward to discussing with Vikas today? Well, like you, I've followed Vcas for some time now, so I, I'm looking forward to this so much. But you know, look, let's look at the, the title of our podcast. You know, the human factor. Yeah, I think the title of of this episode, you know, human centric design, just really strong and powerful, and I'm really looking forward to how we can explore this topic in a lot more depth than we have done so far. I think this would be really interesting to see in what direction this goes. I think for me, you know. You and I have debated what does human centric mean for for quite a while, and obviously, as I said, you know, we've been inspired by um, work that Vcast has done. What I want to understand today is is how does that link to culture, right, and the changing culture, and but also does it have an impact in terms of philosophy? And you know, I don't believe there's a right answer here, so I want to know what Vcast's thoughts around the links to culture and. And also this being a sort of a philosophical debate, if you are. So, yeah, this is going to be great. So I'm really looking forward to it. We are delighted to welcome our guest today, Vikas Shah, entrepreneur and author of Thought Economics. Vikas, welcome. Thank you for having me. Delighted to have you. So, so Vikas, the context of the, the episode today is a, a human-centered approach to design thinking uh, and change. Uh, over the last five years, I think as we've moved into the era of experiences, I think we've become much more mindful of the experiences that we create for our people. I think we will hear statements such as being human centric or creating a great employee experience or treating colleagues as consumers. Yeah. The the key question, however, is, you know, why why has it become so important? You know, for me, uh, it, it's always been important. Now, we're going to explore you know, uh, your thoughts, uh, and you very much have championed a human-centric approach for the last decade. Now, for Simon and myself, this episode is particularly special because, you know, you wrote an article back in 2015, and I've got to give a shout-out to a dear friend and old colleague, Tina Robinson. She was on a plane going somewhere, and she read your yeah. she read your article. She ripped it out, and um, and she passed it to me the next day, and she said, look at this, look at this. And, and that article inspired us, you know, at SAP to take a step back and to really take a look at how we designed a different way to work and help our customers to navigate change. And it, it did inspire us. It inspired us to think differently, but it also opened our eyes to how difficult it can be to change the culture of an organization, to influence others to think differently. Uh, and I think those are some of the things we're going to discuss yeah. today. So, yeah, it's wonderful to have you. It's quite surreal, actually. So let me kick things yeah. off. Let's start with quite an open question. So a human-centered approach, what does that really mean? It, it kind of starts by thinking about what, what the engine of production and the engine of value is in an economy. And, 
you know, th there is this kind of um, notion that should we always have been human centered? And the answer is, well, well no, because that, that wasn't always the most important thing in the economy. You know, for, for you know, a good couple of hundred years plus, we were a, a deeply industrialized economy. And that industrial, industrialized economy meant that the engine of production was the machine. And those machines were the thing that drove our economy, drove our businesses and all of our corporate structures and processes and approaches were oriented around what was best for the machine. Right. And so that's what resulted in a huge amount of project management methodology, a huge amount of HR methodology, a huge amount of organizational design because the, the production was at the center. And it was only really when we started to switch to a more technologically enabled knowledge economy you know, where all of a sudden we as human beings had more primacy because our computers are allowing us to be more active in design. We can modify processes. Machines are more automated. There's a whole shift in what is the core engine of value creation from the being the machine to the human. And that dynamic change in what constitutes economic value has really led to this change in design approaches across all segments of what constitutes a business. So it could be you know, process design, human resources, the whole gamut, really. And so when we talk about a human-centered approach, it really is thinking about what is the core, what is the key to the success of your organization, where is the value creation, and now it's the human. Fascinating. We talk about the change in context all the time. And then there's different layers to that that change in context, isn't there? You know, yeah. and, and and I love that insight. It, it's about what was in what was relevant at that time. And yeah, technology's caught up. You know, we can now automate so much. We live micro experiences, don't we, in our homes that we design. Nobody tells yeah. us how but, to consume. But the interesting thing is, when we think about technology, we you know we often talk about technology stacks, right? So you have the hardware, then you have the software, then you have a platform. Blah, blah, blah. You know, we, we all know this, but what has been fascinating is technology has enabled a whole new stack to sit on top of the economy, right? So even if we go to nations which are, let's say, a little earlier in, in industrialization versus where we are in kind of occidental civilization, let's say. So let's, let's, let's go to Pakistan. Let's go to Bangladesh. Let's go to Indonesia. Even those economies which are still very highly industrial in terms of output are using human-centered approaches because... Now, technology can optimize how people are part of that manufacturing process. How do the humans and the machines interact? What's best for the humans vis-a-vis -vis those machines? So even then, putting humans at the center means that we're now actually respecting the primacy and autonomy of the being, but we're also now optimizing the machine. So, so it's far more than what, what you would think of typically as being HCD, which is often confused for user interface design, et cetera. Building on that, Vikas, then, I mean, as we move into the era uh, in some economies of AI and machine learning, do you think it's even more important to find this human-centric approach to to not lose the soul of an organisation? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because at the moment, there is still this, this, this notional, perhaps, separation between the human and, and the machine within an organization, even if you're in a knowledge economy, right? There's still a separation between the people and, and, and the computers on which they're doing their work. What AI is introducing is a blurring of that line. So we're in a situation where all of a sudden we're creating algorithms, 
which effectively are mirroring how we work in many ways and doing that at scale. So they're amplifying everything that's good and bad about us. But we're also creating much more autonomous systems which are able to make their own decisions and may actually develop their own biases in the future. We just don't know yet. So, so it will create a blur. It will create a change to what we think about. But, but it will also create another layer, right? There's going to be you know, industrial design. There's going to be human-centered design. And there's also going to be algorithmic-centered design. And the algo design space is still wide open. And what that means is, how do we optimize our processes around what algorithms need to succeed? Because there's going to be many industries where algorithms will need to succeed far more than we do as humans. I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples. So in the industrial design space, we're now seeing organizations where humans are inputting, you know, the characteristics of the object that they want. So I want a chair that can do this and is this strong and has this capability. And then an algorithm with the right inputs goes away to design something afresh. And what it outputs often is quite distinctly different from what we could have perceived as humans in terms of our designs and our preconceived notions of what a chair is. But it's better. So in the same way that we had to optimize organizations for the human mind, we will have to optimize organizations for, you know, I hate to use artificial general intelligence because that's a way off, but the algorithmic organization. So if we take a step back then and, and just think about the, the approach, the, the, the mindset, what do you then see as some of the key considerations that really truly underpin this sort of approach to design thinking? So if we, if we look at sort of human-centered design as, 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 the, as the pillar here, you've effectively got three supports. There's the aesthetic and psychological domain. There's the dynamic domain and the economic domain. So the aesthetic and psychological domains is the new one, if you like, that, that comes peculiarly with humans. And that's the domain where we're thinking about how does my business or how does my organization work with people in a human way? How does it engage them emotionally? How does it, what, what is it that makes us desirable? How does it make us feel? It's a very abstract domain to be in, but it's one which is extremely important because if you get this right, you're generating massive value. You know, if we take, you know, classic business school example, but you take something like an Apple, as Apple got this right, the aesthetic of their product, you know, how does it make you feel to be an Apple consumer? They, you know, they learned the tricks in the luxury brands world because the luxury brands have known this for 100 years. You know, when you buy something from Hermes or Versace, the aesthetic domain is critical. The second part of it is the dynamic domain. The dynamic domain is, okay, well, how does this actually work? What's the process? You know, how do we as humans fit into the process of delivery in this business? So the dynamic domain, for example, a great innovator there is the, is, is the low-cost airline world. Because the low-cost airline world realized that the psychological bit was less important to them. But where they could really seriously compete was a dynamic domain, which is humans have to flow through this process. How can we make that really, really quick but also painless? And what's important and not important in that process? And what that means is that they're putting the need of that individual at the middle and then designing a process which means that they're servicing your most basic needs along that line without annoying you. It's actually brilliant what they've done. But it also includes the industry. So if you're looking at industrial processes, you're looking at things like even legal services. Putting the human in the middle of the process design environment means that your solutions could be quite radically different from what you might think. So we, we've been into businesses that we've you know, looked at investing in 
where they've got quite laborious processes often driven by what they think is best. How should we be processing invoices? How should we be processing data? They've never really stopped to ask their individuals, how would you like to do it? And then how can we make the machine work for you? Our last domain, of course, is, is, is economic. And here, it's not necessarily economic in with a, with a big E, if you like, but it's more the economic as in, where is the value, where is the real value derivation here? You know, what is the utility that people are gaining from my business? Is it financial? Is it emotional? Is it something else? So great example is something like a Ferrari. So if we look at Ferrari across these three pillars, scores extraordinarily high on aesthetic because, you know, it's a luxury car and it makes you feel great when you buy it. The dynamic domain is less important because it's actually not that easy to deal with them as a business, but, you know, it doesn't matter. But the economic piece is really interesting because the value derivation is the direct value you feel to yourself in ownership. There's a, there's a, but there's also the kudos that you now present to society. So you now carry the halo effect of being a Ferrari owner into wider society. So the value derivation you gain there is what you pay your £200,000 for at the front. Economically, in pure standard model economics of, you know, economic, homo economicus, makes no sense. Right? If you were a rational economic actor, you would never buy such a frivolous thing. But that's not who we are. And so you can think in many ways of um, human-centered or human-centered design and design thinking as being an extension of what's been created as behavioral economics. That's, that's one way to look at where this slots into the wider picture. It's fascinating. When, when, when we read the article, there were those three pillars, as you described. And so, you know, humanly desirable technologically feasible solution and then the economically yeah. viable. What we learned, what we learned as we actually built that into our work, right? We used them. We were literally using them. A customer said to me one day, I'm not convinced this is organizationally doable. And then we started to learn about the constraints, right? Of culture and operating models and, yeah. you know, all of these bits and pieces. So we started to get an understanding of there are barriers actually to, to thinking in this way. So th th let's take that question at the moment then. So, you know, when we think about the future and, and this shift, we, we understand mm -hmm. it's important, but why is it so difficult for some organizations to be truly human-centric? Because many aren't. There's definitely one really big barrier, which is, you know, our fleshy masses, right? Because if we're looking at, again, referring to kind of, you know, one of the biggest sectors on the planet, the industrial sector, the biggest barrier now is how fast can humans move? How fast can we examine things? How fast can we shift things and, and do things? So, so, there's, so, so we are now part of this technological limitation. It's no longer just the computer or the, or the, or the robot. We're part of that. That's quite a big culture shift in recognition where you're saying, actually, we are now a technical problem. And the important thing for an organization to do is to realize that without dehumanizing the workforce. Because saying the workforce is a technical problem can lean us towards the dystopian vision of robots replacing us, whereas in fact it shouldn't and it needn't. We as a technical limitation are also augmented by this incredible brain we have, meaning that we can now operate several machines. We can operate across multiple domains, you know. So we have to be very honest about where the limitations really are. Do I just not have the right workforce? Do they just not have the right skill sets? You know, these are the real limitations because technologically now, there's very little that we need to achieve in any business 
where there is not a technology or suite of technologies that can enable us to do that. So, you know, I was literally speaking yesterday with a with a startup in Switzerland that, that works in fraud detection. And, you know, for them, that they have an algorithm which can detect fraud real time in organizations far faster than any human ever could. And it can save organizations in real time, you know, several billion dollars a year just, just in Switzerland alone. The, the, adoption, the, the, the adoption barrier there is not technological. It's human because what's my risk and compliance officer going to do now? How is it going to make them feel? There was another example we looked at, which was um, with an AI that was examining. This is a startup in the US where they were using machine learning um, that had scanned millions and millions and millions of x-rays, specifically chest x-rays. And um, their algorithm was able to diagnose lung cancer far quicker than any human ever could and with a far higher accuracy rate, right? Like close to 100%. And what they, what they discovered, which, which I think is really relevant for your question, is they never went in to a doctor and said, hey, look, this is what we can do, isn't it cool? What they recognized is that we're flawed, big hunks of water and flesh that have emotions. And so they said to doctors, look, we know you're the smart person, but why don't you just use our tool to help augment your decision making? So even though they knew that their tool was far more accurate, what they said is, instead of the, the display on the screen saying, there is cancer here, the display was like, maybe you should just look in this area. And so this was really smart. So in terms of design thinking, where that then refers to is that kind of psychological domain, that first one, aesthetic and psychological, which is how does this relate to our emotions? That's the barrier. Fraud company was going in saying, we will replace your chief risk officer. We're brilliant. You know, we're far better. Diagnostic one was very emotionally aware and said, we're going to augment your work and make you much better. It's very clever. That's the shift, isn't it? I mean, Simon, did you have a follow up question for VCAS around that? Yeah, I did. Thank you. Uh, I mean, if we if we look at an organisation that aspires to have a human centric design, but hasn't yet achieved that, can, can they evolve to it? Or do they have to fundamentally go back and start disrupting their organisation at a more fundamental level? What, how can they actually achieve that? Well, they have to. There's, there's no there's no real uh, question. If, if, if you if your business is not using design thinking, and human-centered design approaches across every aspect of what you're doing, you're just going to get left behind. It doesn't matter what you do, because we now have a toolkit that enables practically anything you need to happen to happen. And, you know, businesses like yours are building those toolkits. And, you know, so even if I go back a decade, if we were deploying, you know, an, an ERP system or, you know, a new customer relationship system or a data management system across a global business, there were still technological limitations. If we said, can it do this? The developer would still say, don't know. There's basically nothing you need a system to do that it can't do now. And on the basis of that, there is no excuse anymore for a business to not be thinking in terms of human principles first. So you have to. And if you're finding that journey painful and hard, that's a cultural issue in your business. You need to fix it. Yeah, and I think that's the key point, is it, around the cultural piece. I mean, I just wanted to get your, I, I'm going to ask you a question about, you know, how this is going to evolve and, and think yeah. about the next or decade. But I, I'd be really interested to understand what are you seeing today? How is 
maybe the lack of thinking or or, or the cultural barriers, how are they manifesting? So, for, for example, we had a gentleman, Gethin Nadine, join us on episode one mm -hmm. to talk about engagement and well-being and mental health. And, you know, Gethin was saying without hesitation, as we come through the back of the pandemic, up to 50% of the workforce are going to go and look for a new job. So you have to stop and say, well, why? Why is that happening? What, what's going on? Why are we hearing that, you know, there's an itchy feet syndrome at the moment where people are thinking about, I want a new experience here and there, where we're hearing that retention's getting difficult, attracting the right talent's getting difficult. We know there's a shortfall. So the manifestation of perhaps not having a human-centered approach or that real focus is starting to bite. What are you seeing? There's almost a breakaway competition now, right? So you have the Olympians at one end, the massive corporations like the Deloitte's of the world and so on, and then you have everyone else. And, and the problem you've got is the big corporations are cash and investment rich at the moment. You know, money's never been so so abundant and so cheap as they are as it is right now. So as a result of that, a lot of larger business are basking in having practically zero cost of capital so they can pay whatever they want. They can give people whatever benefits they want. It doesn't really matter. The vast majority of employers, i.e. small and medium businesses across the world, they don't have that benefit, right? And so what you end up with now is this, this, this situation where you have businesses which are not traditional because they are backwards. They're just, they're just normal businesses. And then these gigantic global organizations that are existing in, in a Narnia of, of cheap finance and abundant finance that can that can create almost utopian visions for what the future of business should be, which which frankly aren't sustainable. Because right now the workforce is sat there thinking, well, I can just work from home now. That's great. And the truth is the future is not going to be a work from home or work remote future, but it's also not going to be an office future. It's going to be a much more dynamic future where you know, you might end up with a business like SAP that has, let's say, five global offices, but then you might have like 100 regional co-working spaces where customers and team can come collaborate because human interaction really matters. We're in this weird limbo at the moment where I think people are trying to figure out what will be the new power dynamic between employee and business. What will be the new power dynamic between employee and systems? And I think that's the tension which we're, which we're currently seeing. And I don't think there's an easy fix for this because for, for every individual who says, I'm getting itchy feet about my job, there's another individual equally qualified who can't find a job. And, and this, this is the reality. Most of the commentary you hear about this is limited to that top strata of businesses. Because guess what? If I went and did a data science degree at NYU and popped out as a master's degree graduate with actually no experience, I could go in half a million dollars anywhere I want. That's Absolutely. strata of a strata of a strata of, of, of the skills base. For, for most people, it really isn't like that. Yeah, it isn't, is it? It, it absolutely isn't. Simon, your thoughts? Yeah, I was, I, I'm, I'm just reflecting, actually, on the foreword, uh, the, the, the um, introduction to the thought economics, uh, where it talks about um, you know, the meaning of lockdown, uh, but also the fact that lockdown has, has forced people to actually reflect themselves about what they want. Uh, going forwards. I, I, you know, I think it, it's this tension, if you like, almost between what an organisation is prepared to flex to and change to in terms of this design yeah. thinking, but also the expectation now is, I think, changing from the people as, as well. And I think that's a healthy tension, isn't it, where people are saying, I now want a different experience uh, and encouraging an organisation to move to be more human centric, as well as the, the organisation thinking from their perspective, how do we make it more human centric? Yeah. 
However, the elephant in the room there is productivity and the metrics of productivity, right? At the moment, some of these businesses can afford to pay crazy salaries and bonuses because, you know, they're getting inhumane levels of productivity out of their staff. You know, all you've got to do is look at the city of London to see, you know, people who are getting in, getting into the city at half five in the morning, leaving at 10 every night, and, and that's that's their lot. What lockdown's done is it's, it's shown people who've never really experienced anything else. Oh, wow, it's kind of fun spending time with my family. Oh, I've got a pet, and they're really good fun. And so you, you're seeing people who've suddenly discovered that there's more to life. However, yes. the biggest cultural shift has to be, yes, there's more to life, but you have to realize the salary you are getting involved some sacrifice. And so you need to decide what's more important, right? Because realistically... It is currently basically impossible to get the same level of sweat productivity out of a member of staff remotely as you would do in the office because the culture is different. The dynamics are different. You know, I've, we, we've got several um, clients that are in financial services. Trading floors are like the ultimate hive of activity. And yes, I can mobilize hedge fund traders you know, uh, or FX traders to be remote, but they're not going to do the same job as if they're in a room buzzing and competing off each other. So what that's going to mean is either salaries reduce, profit expectations reduce in businesses, or the market's going to have to put less pressure on businesses around quarterly returns and their expectations of quarterly returns to cope with a more diffuse workforce. So these, these are some really, really big, hard questions which need to be solved before we really then decide what direction society is going to take moving forward. Oh, it makes you think, doesn't it? I mean, it's not easy. And, and, and I've been on a couple of webinars and I'm talking to HRDs, for example, who are really wrestling with what is our proposition tomorrow? You know, what does it look like? You know, the work from home, the work in the office, you know, what actually are we communicating to the market? So somebody who doesn't work for us today, you know, why would they choose us yeah. over the next organization? But it's also impacting innovation, right? Because you know, pretty much every organization that we've been into that has innovation at the heart. So we're thinking there about everything from computer animation to engineering to biosciences. And not inconsiderable amount of that innovation is as a direct result of the collision of people in the workplace, you know, where a, a UX designer and a manufacturing person will sit down and go, oh, have you thought about this? You know, the, the, enabling those informal engagements and collisions between teams is currently basically impossible on the current remote platforms we have because you end up with formal meetings coming in on platforms like this where we're all having a meeting and there's an agenda and that's great and then you might have a slack channel full of cat pictures and that's fine too but what it doesn't enable is that oh what are you working on oh i saw that this is kind of interesting it it, it currently does not enable that that real deep level of human interaction, which is so critical in innovation. And so my, my real worry is that, are we going to end up reducing the ability of businesses to innovate by focusing on a remote workforce that, that is not really having those collisions? That's a debate point. I think that's really, again, we always have to consider the so what, don't we? Because there's always going to be a so what, you know? Yeah. You can't have, I hate to say you can't have cake and eat it, but in essence, that's what you're saying, right? You know. Correct. Yeah, if, if we if we shift too far this direction, something's got to give, is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, because the, the, the models are not mutually compatible, right? 
So mm-hmm. this is where we're going to have to start to have those hard conversations. You know, one of the solutions for that is more co-working style spaces that enable collisions to happen, even if they're not with your own team. But then in many industries, you don't want that. You know, in many industries, like let's take biotech. You know, we've had some investments before in medtech and biosciences and, you know, they're pretty secure. Like, you know, they're very IP rich environments. You're not going to want your team to be sat on a laptop in a co-working space with anybody looking over their shoulder. But at the same time, you want your team to work together. And that's a difficult tension to cross at the moment, because at the moment, there seems to be 99 flag waivers for let's all work at home is great versus one flag waiver for, yeah, but actually the office matters for some reasons. So if we if we shift gear then and think about uh, the, the the future, so we talk about the changing context, we look at the next 10 years, we think about how the demographics will be quite different. There is an aging workforce. We know that there will be some some specific skill shortages. But let's also think about the expectations and preferences of those people from that sort of demographic group coming into the workplace. Very values driven, you know, experience is important, career growth is important. You know, we can't ignore this this mass that is coming into the workplace. How do you see things evolving? Again, taking into account innovation, taking into account productivity, growth and all of these things. But this change in the critical mass coming in. What do you see happening in the next sort of five to 10 years? I think the biggest shift is going to be the cultural expectations of individuals vis-a-vis technology, right? So so we had a generation of digital natives who are kind of now in their mid to late 30s. And so they were, they were, they were individuals who grew up with the internet. But following them are a generation of individuals for whom their on-life and their off-life are, are now the same thing. Even for digital natives, we still have the separation between my real life and my digital life and, and a skill set that, that was commensurate to that. But the, the generation after that, there's no such separation. Your digital life and real life are the same. You have typically much higher levels of, of, of baseline digital skills. You know, e- even, the, even the most elementary schools now teach some forms of coding, et cetera. So I think the real fascinating thing is going to be more the case that we are now going to have a generation of people coming into a workforce with the skills to get the most out of the platforms that currently exist. Like if you're deploying, you know, a a SAP platform into a business, if everyone in that business from the shop floor to the C-suite could code and understood data science a little bit, imagine the the capabilities those businesses would have. Whereas at the moment, most of those businesses will have an IT department and they'll still have lots of people who are like, my email doesn't work, what do I do? Whereas the generation coming through will be people who have the skills to go, okay, well, I need to do this data transformation, right? So what do I do? And they just get on and do it from shop floor to C-suite. That is a tremendous capacity shift in how organizations work. Because all of a sudden, we will start to see organizations being much more dynamic and agile, using data better. You know, this is going to be alongside the proliferation of the Internet of Things. So organizations are going to have much more data, much more interesting data. So I think it's going to be a really, really exciting time because all of a sudden we're going to have these like, if you like, data science natives coming into businesses and the cultural shift that that will make and the productivity shift that will make, I think it's going to be profound. 
one of our one of our uh, episodes coming up actually we're going to be talking with uh, Mark Cunningham from Ankerstone about one consistent data model uh, but it's more than that isn't it data's king today it, it, it's it's enormous but just 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 thinking about that I'm struck by the earlier conversation about the cultural clash because one of the things that we hear at the moment you know when we think about this change in demographic is I, I, I I'm struggling to retain I'm actually struggling to attract where our engagement scores, if you want to use that, you know, as a metric, are not where we want them to be. You know, these seem to be real concerns. Should they be, or or, or should it be? Yes, they are a concern always because you want to be creating a great place to work. But you can't just look at that and ignore strategy, growth, innovation. So, so they are a concern, but they're also not just the business's problem. One of the most important things here is the skills advice that younger people are getting in schools and colleges and universities, because schools, colleges and universities are where the precedent is set to those young people about what are the careers that are worth getting into and what what's exciting and what isn't. What should I be doing? What shouldn't I be doing? And what you're finding is that those those perceptions of what is and isn't worth doing are becoming so rigid that by the time they pop out into the real workforce, they're like, I am, I'm not doing that. It's not because they just, it's, it's, it's more, I just don't want to do it rather than I can't or I shouldn't. And, you know, we need businesses to be working with schools and colleges and their local constituencies to say, look, why don't we send in our team so you can see a bit about what we do? Yeah. Why don't we send in some engineers so you can see what an engineer does? What about an administrator? What does an admin do? What does What is sales admin? You know, young people now don't have the same visibility into careers that they used to, which is quite ironic given the capability of technology. And that's that's preventing them from flourishing. You know, we see it across our, our groups of businesses as well, where young people from different parts of the world have very different attitudes to work, they have very different attitudes to development. And you see that in terms of who rises and who doesn't in the business. And there's so many times where I'll see you know, a CV with 15 different jobs and someone who's like 22 and you're just like, well, you're just switching for incremental changes between businesses. That's not how you develop a career. No, but they're not getting that advice at the front. And, and I think that that is a challenge. So there's there's lots of stakeholders in that conversation, not just the business. Similar, weirdly to I know you mentioned the mental health thing before, but similar to the mental health conversation where everyone's like, oh, the NHS isn't doing enough. Well, it's not the NHS's problem. It's a community issue, same way that this retention and attraction of staff is not just the business's problem. It's a business community's problem. Because it's too easy, isn't it, to say that, you know, it's an organisational challenge, et cetera. And it is, of course, you know, certainly if you're a HRD today as the custodian of people, you know, these are front and centre. They're, they're real concerns. But equally, though, you know, you're having to link back to what you said earlier about, you know, the productivity that can't be ignored. You know, it, it, it simply can't. So I'm just very conscious of our time, as always, because I can chat forever. So I'm going to ask one last question, Vikas, if I can. So coming through the pandemic and, you know, this sort of 15 months of operating much more virtually, OK, there's there's no doubt, I think, that organisations are stepping back. They're reimagining how work can be done. Um, they are looking at that sort of overarching employee experience. So for those listening today, what would be some of your top pieces of advice in terms of, you know, laser in on, you know, think about this, consider that, you know, look at affecting this. Well, what would be some of your pieces of advice? So I think number one is companies, particularly in Europe and the UK, don't understand broadly the importance of company culture, right? The US businesses do this very, very well. And 
so much of what constitutes company culture in the European and UK context is based around, well, just, you know, got some nice pictures in the office and that's fine. If businesses really want to succeed in a new kind of hybrid world, they have to start to codify what is our culture? What does it mean to be a part of this business? What does it mean to be a team member? What are we here for? And they have to figure out how that operates at a distance. How do you keep people engaged in your culture? How do you motivate them? Because everything in that domain now changes. Motivation changes when you're yeah. working from home. You know, th these are front and center of what C-suites in businesses have to be thinking about right now. The second thing is impact because there's not one industry right now where workforce and investors are not asking you know, environmental and social governance questions. You know, I, I teach lots of grads and a lot of those students will not work somewhere that doesn't have an ESG plan. Most investors that I know, there are exceptions, but most investors that I know now will not invest in someone who isn't heading towards carbon neutrality that hasn't got an ESG plan that they're measuring. So the, these are very different considerations for C-suites versus quarterly returns and so on. But, but that is front and center of what they should be thinking about right now if they want to succeed over the next decade. Simon, any comments from yourself or just building on, on Vcaster's point there? Just fascinated listening. I mean, it's it's just invigorating to hear the passion coming across from Vcaster. It really is. It just drawing me into the conversation. I'm I, I'm almost an audience member here, just listening to this, <laughs> if I'm honest. And, and I think Vcast, you know, we often sit, we we talk with customers, and it's a debate, right? There's no right or wrong in some of this, right? It's about no. working through the considerations, isn't it? These are philosophical rather than financial questions, right? Asking the question of what, what does it constitute to be a member of X team is not a question you can answer in Excel, right? This is, these are, this is the difficulty. And, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, if, if you go and study at, like at MIT, for example, the liberal arts forms quite a big backbone of, of your study. So if you go study engineering at a major US university, you probably will also study philosophy and arts and culture as part of that, whereas it doesn't really happen here in, in, in the UK and Europe. But it's tremendously important. US entrepreneurs flourish because they have a deeper understanding of culture and philosophy, which is ultimately what makes human beings work and succeed. You know, it's, it's one of those things that we, we probably should be encouraging that more in leadership programs. We probably should be encouraging more cultural and philosophical discussion. And these things are an anathema to European and UK business norms, but they are unfortunately going to be extremely important in the future. Yeah, it's interesting. I was, I, a, a good friend and uh, a customer of ours was telling me through the pandemic, they pulsed really regularly, of course, because they went to virtual when they, they're a very operational business. And she said, we started to observe the change in our culture. We started yeah. to observe a new leadership model appearing. We observed as a senior leadership team that our decision-making got better. Day-to-day, -day, we're hopeless. We're getting each other together with diaries, but in that virtual context. So you can see that there's much more of an awareness of the cultural impacts, but it's not native. It's not doesn't seem to be common. No, but it takes time, right? Like at the beginning of the pandemic, whenever you convened a Teams call or a Zoom call, it was kind of novel. Yeah. And, you know, you wasted the first 10 minutes of the call asking, how are you? How are things? You know, we saw that gradually slip away because people realized, hang on, if I'm doing five Zoom calls in a day, I'm literally spending an hour 
yeah. having these pointless conversations. And so now you are more commonly seeing people convene on a call and someone goes, right, let's get started. Yeah. And you just dive straight in. But the methods by which that becomes culturally acceptable takes time because that's really a tussle between all of us in, the, in a civilization figuring out what we will and won't put up with. The DNA, I'll just close. I mean, the DNA of a human being for me hasn't changed over the last 100, 150 years. But the preferences, our expectations, and the means in which we can live our lives has Correct. changed beyond belief. But deep down, at a fundamental level, human beings still need clarity. They need feedback, standards, all of these bits and pieces day in, day out to go, I had a good day. I, I achieved. I feel valued. Yeah. I feel connected. And, and I think that's really what the main challenge is for organizations is how are you creating uh, you know, that culture, that environment, putting the human at the center that enables the organization to innovate, to grow, Correct. to be productive, et cetera. That, that's ultimately the challenge, isn't it? So one of the best things to think about is the fact that there's no right answers here, right? This is a, these are philosophical questions, not financial questions. So you can't create this homogeneity in your response. And it's clearly illustrated when you just go to different parts of the world and evaluate what is and isn't important. So an interesting one is around fashion, let's say. So you go to Italy and... Um, irrespective of what you do, your appearance and all these things are far more important. You know, you could be going to, you know, a casual setting in Italy and everyone's really sharply dressed. Whereas, for example, you go to the US, to the West Coast, everything's really casual. Like, yeah. you know, you go to like a gallery launch in San Francisco, you know, people are dressed in like a polo and jeans. Neither is right or wrong. It's just that's what's culturally important, right? That's not a question you can answer quantitatively. But these are the kind of questions which are coming up more and more and more in organizational design, particularly organizations at scale. And that's the real toolkit that, that you know, human-centered design and design thinking give you is, 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 is toolkits to be able to think in those ways. Because I can't tell you how much of a pleasure it has been to have you as our guest today. And, you know, thank you so much for your time. I, as Simon said, I mean, I've been listening all the way along and nodding my head furiously. This has been enlightening, insightful, and I am absolutely sure that our listeners are going to love listening to this episode. Oh, thank you so thank much. Thank you for having me on. Simon, before we kicked off this podcast, I think we were both quite excited about meeting Vikas, but also having the opportunity to speak with him and and understand, you know, truly some of his thoughts and insights around, you know, what does a human-centered approach mean? I always say it, but I loved that conversation. I thought he was fantastic. And I felt like uh, halfway through, I was thinking, I'm, I'm in the listener's shoes here. I just wanted to you know, let Vikas speak. As we always do, you know, we always summarize, don't we? And think about our takeaways. What did you take away? Oh, like you. I mean, we've been talking about this topic for a number of years, and just to hear that conversation uh, from Vikas was was fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I almost became an audience member. It is just so easy to listen to that topic and hear the the different thoughts that we, that we're getting from Vikas. But his passion came across really powerfully in that, uh, and you know, he's really exploring these topics to to such another level than than we have previously explored some of these things. I was really fascinated from a technology perspective, where he's talking about the design of a 
of, of a human-centric design by looking at you know technology or productivity level, but then layering on the experience layer, but taking it further with the algorithmic layer. Yeah, I just loved it. Really loved it. It, it. it was the complexities, isn't it? We've often talked about there's no right or wrong. It is a philosophical debate. I'm so glad that came out. I'm so glad that he addressed that. But my takeaway. You can't look at these things in isolation. An organization has a strategy. It has a need to grow. It needs to be productive. It needs to be innovative. You can't ignore them, but then you've also then got to think about, but what kind of organization are you creating for your employees today, but also those who are coming next? And you've got to connect and combine all of them together. You you can't look at them in, in, in isolation. And I think, you know, we've certainly tried to do that. Um, and then the last one is going back to that point about that philosophy. What is that philosophical view? And and, and that's not going to be sat, you know answered on an Excel spreadsheet, as you said. It's not an economic viewpoint. It's it's what is your philosophy about what does human centric mean in your organisation and aligning to your culture? And so, um, brilliant episode, Simon. Brilliant, and um, we'll be moving on to the next ones. But uh, yeah, until then, I hope everybody enjoys listening to the episode. And uh, yeah, goodbye.